So in 2 Corinthians, we've said several times across the span of this study that there's a battle going on in the church at Corinth that is the same as the battle that's going on in this church today. And every day in between those times, it's been the same, and it will continue to be the same until the Lord returns. And it's a battle for the truth. So if you get your listening guides out, we're just going to start by setting our hearts around the reality that truth is always a battle. It's always a battle. All the way back on uh, January 1 of this year, I started that sermon from this same book of the Bible with the statement that our daily war is believing an utterly audacious gospel. Remember that? It's, it's a war. It's a battle. It's always been. It always will be. And so when we're looking at this church that's riddled with problems, that has all sorts of struggles that the Apostle Paul has been dealing with through 1 Corinthians, that he's been so stressed out in between the two letters, as we saw several uh, segments ago, uh, waiting to find out what their response was going to be. I mean, over and over and over, we see that there's problems, but why? Why all these problems? Why does Paul go and establish a church in the power of the pure, unadulterated gospel. Teach them the gospel from his own lips. And then no sooner than he's moved on, with the drift begins. And struggles come in. See, before the, look, the, the church is not the building, it's the people. And so when the people in the building are riddled with problems and anxieties and stresses and struggles and confusion and bitterness and and envy and all sorts of things, it bubbles up into all of these corporate issues that they're facing. And remember something. We started with a group of people that were so secularized in Corinth. I mean, Paul goes to Corinth. It's the... It's the Las Vegas Strip of the first century. These people were so secular, so, so immersed in the flesh and, and all sorts of deviant behaviors. And the Apostle Paul sees so many of them radically changed, converted, altered. Just they become brand new. And yet the drift starts. See, much like Paul, as he writes these words we're going to read, I need you to understand, he's, he's writing these words, and he sees in his mind the faces of the people that are going to receive them, because he knows them. He, he's connected to them. He loves them. He's invested in them. And so understand that as I'm writing sermons every week, what do I see in my mind as I'm, as I'm typing these words on the page? I see your faces. I see you. I see your circumstances and your situation. I know your stories. I know your victories. I know your pain. I see you. They're not just words. And so look, it yes, Paul's writing to a church that, that still is, is filled with some problems and still creating him some frustrations. I mean, yes, they've come a long way, but it's still not everything it ought to be. But listen, what you have to realize is that it would be so easy for him to just lose heart, lose sight, to, to lose his zeal. For them, over all of this elongated process. But instead, what it does is it makes Paul burn with even more fervent zeal that these 
people that he loves, that he's writing these words to, will reach their full potential. So what do I mean, this drift? I think, I think that I, I oftentimes think about if I only could preach five texts, what five messages would they be? And if I just repeated them, one, two, three, four, five, started over, one, and how beneficial that might be for us. Because it's not, it, it's not a, a, a myriad of problems. It's a myriad of symptoms. But there's only a couple things going on in this room that are causing all the symptoms. And I think this text would be one of those five texts. See, here's the thing. It's the problem is not denying the gospel or disowning the gospel. The problem is displacing the gospel. See, nobody's deconstructing their faith. Nobody's, you know, marching out and uh, declaring that uh, they, you know, renouncing Christ or any of that. We're not talking about blatant apostasy. We're talking about this subtle drift where the gospel that once captivated our heart just gets displaced by other things. Now, I want you to understand, Paul's still under attack, and it's personal. It's personal. The things they're saying about him is that he's not flashy enough. He doesn't act or look successful like these super apostles that come in. He, he does, they, they're, they're making uh, light of the way that he, he talks and preaches. They're accusing him of not being spiritual. I mean, these are very personal attacks against the, the, the character of, of who the apostle Paul is. And so what I want us to consider is, well, now, what is Paul's posture when all this is being said of him? What's the story that Paul is telling in his head? Because when you are attacked, when your life gets difficult, when your circumstances get uh, uh, painful, how you respond to that is going to be 100% predicated on what the story is you're telling yourself in your head. That's what's going to determine what you do. And so what is the, the, the story? What's the soundtrack that's playing in Paul's head as all these personal attacks are being levied at him? Well, listen. You could say, well, I don't know. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us how Paul responds. And Paul's response tells us what Paul's soundtrack is. See, if the soundtrack in Paul's mind was saying things like, these people are hopeless. These people don't listen. They're not, they don't care about the things that I've said. They don't care about all the effort that I've poured into them. They don't appreciate my investment in them. They're not serious about the things of God. He could have just said, you know what? I don't deserve to be treated this way. Oh, you, you don't want me? Fine. Have it your way. See, what he could have done is he could have done what, what we often do today. He could have fought fire with fire. He could have attacked them. Right back on the things that they were attacking him on. They could have, he, he could have fired back at them like, oh, so you're so good looking? Oh, well, let's hear you preach. Why don't you, what's your sermon going to be about? You know, they're attacking his preaching skills. Wouldn't it have been so easy for Paul to say, oh, I can't preach? Well, look here, moron. How many churches have you planted? Right? I mean, he has a very successful track record going here. 
he doesn't do any of that. See, he could have told himself all those things. He could have, he could have told himself that story. But if he would have, it would have been a lie. Because it's not true. It's not true. Remember when he first addressed the Corinthians in the very first verse of the first letter, 1 Corinthians? Remember way back when we studied that text and how he opened up? Now, remember, I said in week one, a couple years ago, I said, this is a church. Many of you have, have, have been in church long enough. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians. You know some things about it. You know these people were riddled with sexual immorality. They were, they were getting drunk in church. They were competing with each other. They were suing each other. I mean, it was just ridiculous what was going on. Yet he opens up his dialogue with them from the beginning. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing full well what the disaster was that he was about to address. See, that gives us insight into the, the, the playlist in Paul's mind. What is this story going on in Paul's mind? It's not a story of, of frustration. Listen, yes, there are people in every church that profess Christ, but don't possess him. Yes. But he sees this church through the eyes of Christ. He sees these people, and he sees a remnant of true believers. He sees people sanctified, called to be saints. And therefore, he knows that wherever the Spirit of God is, it's never hopeless because all things are possible. See, that's why he doesn't lose sight. That's why he doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He doesn't say, this is hard. That's why we don't have a letter of him complaining about these, these reluctant people who just continue to drive him crazy. Because whatever they're doing, it can't penetrate or overwhelm the soundtrack in his mind which is constantly playing the truth of the gospel. So he knows that, no, these aren't my people. These are God's people. And the Spirit of God is here. And wherever the Spirit of God is, there's freedom. And these people can flourish because anything is possible. It's never too late and it's never hopeless. And there's always, there's always reason to praise. See, Paul knew he, he, if he knew anything, here's what he knew. He knew that Jesus Christ was the king of his story. See, that's what he knew. He knew that the reason he was even in this situation was because of Jesus. He knew what Jesus had done in his life. So he wasn't, he wasn't looking at them. He wasn't comparing himself with them. He was simply observing people who were in trouble, who had displaced the gospel, who were struggling, who were, who were floundering, who were behaving in ways that were uh, disgraceful. But here's the thing. Every time he was tempted to get frustrated with them or to quit or something like that, he remembered who he was when he met Christ on the Damascus Road. He said, whoa, now before I give up on you, let's just stop a minute and remember how God didn't give up on murderous me. See? It's the, it's the soundtrack in his head that holds him faithful through it all. Look at what he says. In the midst of this frustration, watch verse 1, chapter 10. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when you are away. Remember, one of their big criticisms of him was, oh, yeah, you're Mr. Big Shot in your letters, but then when you come, you're weak and you're, you're, you're feeble and you're, you're, you're not bold at all. You just talk a big game, but then in person. And, and your, your looks are so unimpressive. So what does Paul do? Does he say, you think I'm ugly? Look at this mirror. No. 
Does he say, how dare you say that about me, an apostle? No. He says, I entreat you by meekness and gentleness. I who am humble when face to face with you. Why is he saying that but bold towards you when I'm away? Because he loves them. He says, I beg, verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. See, he's saying, I hope that when I come, I can continue to be gentle with you and kind with you because I love you. I don't want to come and, 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 you know, bash you over the head. That's not what I want to do. But there are some that I may have to have difficult conversations with. See? See, the thing is, is that the way that we respond to life is according to something. I don't know if you've thought this through, but who are you? Where are you? What is it about you? How do you, how do you see things? How do you deal with things? How do you overcome things? How do you, how do you walk through things? How do you relate to God? It's all according to this soundtrack that plays in your mind. And it never stops playing. Your voice never stops talking in your head. What is it saying? You see, you only have two choices, okay? You, to, to figure this out, you got to back all the way up to 10,000 feet. And then you got to move in closer. So to start, you have to, you have to decide. Am I knit together in my mother's womb? Am I fearfully or wonderfully made? Or am I just an accident, an evolutionary accident? That is the, the first question you have to answer that drives the soundtrack in your mind. Am I? Am I created specifically and intentionally by a creator? Or do am I just a blob of, of, of cells and and molecules because that right there starts the course towards where we go see if you're created then you are accountable to a creator it changes everything about your posture see if you if you write if if you write a song if you write an original song and you get this song all worked out, and you score the music to it, and you get it all uh, done. And then somebody comes along, uh, visits your house, and snatches up a piece of paper with that song on it, takes it and sells it or records it, and it becomes a, a, a big hit. You are devastated and furious and angered. Why? Because something that you created has been taken away from you, something that you had dominion over because it came from you. You had rights over that and someone else did something with it that they had no right to do, right? Nobody in here would go, well, you know, I mean, it's, it, it just came out of my mind and so they took it and so whatever. No. You would feel ownership because you created it. Well, then if you're created by a creator, then how does the creator feel when what he's created decides that he has no dominion or authority over them, that he has no right or claim over them. See, here's the problem. The problem is, is that we're born into a culture that says you are your own boss. You're free to do whatever you want to do. You can think however you want to think. You can believe however you want to believe. You can believe your thing. I'll believe my thing. You can do your thing. I'll do my thing. And we don't want anybody telling us what to do. And as soon as somebody comes along and starts telling us what we ought to do, we immediately throw up our hands and get very defensive. And the problem is we've, uh, we've adopted that posture in the church. See, we don't mind saying Jesus is our Lord or we're a Christian or we love him. or we. But here's the thing. Is he the Lord? Is he the king of your story? 
Does he have authority over what? Some of the areas of your life? Part of the areas of your life? Or all, every inch of your life? You see, because that's where the soundtrack begins to play. It's your posture in regards to, uh, am I created? And if so, how was I created? And then what rights does a creator have over me as his created person? See, the, the Bible says, For by him, the Lord Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things. That, that he has authority that reaches over all things. It is unmatched. It's unlimited. He's the creator king. Therefore, No one is an accident. So therefore, we don't owe him religious activity. You don't owe him Sunday mornings or occasional allegiance or some modified behaviors. No, if that's true, we owe him everything. Every single thing. See, the, the allegiance that he calls us to is absolute because the authority that he has is absolute. That means everything related to my time, everything related to my talent, everything related to my resources, every single thing about me, God has ultimate authority over everything, every single thing of my life, every decision that I make, every activity that I participate in, every place I go, the people that I do life with, the way that I spend my money, the way that I save my money, the way that I enjoy my money, what I do with my time. He has authority over all those things, all of them. See, some of you, it seems inconceivable for you to live your life under complete authority to someone else. But every day, you don't just make decisions about anything. You consider him in every single thing. Does that sound somehow radical? Does that sound somehow just over the top? Not to the Bible. That's how the Apostle Paul is able to do what he does and be who he is. This is what the gospel calls us to. See, here's our normal. This is, this is the normal Corinthian, American gospel experience today. Don't just reject what I'm about to say. Admit that this in some way rings true in your life. We're going along living our life. Whether we admit it or not, we're far more focused on external things going on in and around our life than we are what's going on in our heart. And as all these things that we're looking at are going on, And as things are happening around us, eventually there's some events that come into our lives that are unexpected, that we don't like. We don't understand. We don't want. We don't deserve whatever it is. And we see and we, we're, we're fixated on these things. And when things start getting a little rocky or shaky or whatever the case may be, maybe it's somebody says something about us, attacks our, us, whatever the case, there's just something starts to happen. So we tell ourselves a story about it in our head. 
You immediately start talking to yourself. Before you ever talk to your spouse or anyone else, you're, you're already in your head going, well, oh, I don't know why this happened. I don't believe. Is God punishing me? Why is this happening? What did I do wrong? Do they hate me? They don't appreciate everything that I've done for them. They didn't see this. They didn't do that. I didn't do that. And you immediately, immediately start telling a story. That's the first thing that happens before a word ever leaves your mouth. Then... After you start telling that story, at some point later, if you're spiritual, you ask God to bless that story. See, you start to pray things like, God, they hurt me and they wounded me and whatever, and I don't like that. And so, God, will you bless that story? Will you make them take it back? Or will you uh, make me not be upset with them? Or will you fix this problem that I'm facing? Or will you heal my health condition? Or will you solve my financial problem? Or whatever it is, whatever the story is, the narrative that you started instantly when something unexpected happened, now you're asking God to bless your story. It's your story. It's not the gospel. It's your perception of what's going on. It's your ideas about how it makes you feel. It's your thoughts about what you wanted to happen, but what didn't happen. It's all about you. And then you really sincerely want God to bless that. When he has absolute authority over your life, think about this. Total authority over your life. Nothing can come in, go out, go through. He doesn't miss a detail. Nothing can, can happen in your life. I mean, in other words, think of all the things the Scripture would say about a believer and God's sovereignty over their life. Yet, all of that's out the window because you've already decided how you feel and what you want. And now you want God to bless it. And it even sounds spiritual to all the other Christians around you. And people join in. You can't narrate your own story successfully. That's impossible. How do I know that? Because what did God do? What did he do? Did he, in his redemptive plan... Did he, did he slaughter his son for the forgiveness of sin so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life and then instantly take us to eternal life, the moment of salvation? No, he didn't do that. Then did he leave us here but fix all our problems? No, he didn't do that. Think of all the things he could have done, but what he did do was he put his spirit within us to lead us and guide us with a voice and he gave us his word so that we would know the narrative of the story we should be saying in our mind. Which means if it were possible for you to narrate your own story, then what you're saying is you don't need the Bible. The Bible is God's narration of your story. That's what it is. That's what the whole thing is. But see, what, what happens is we have events in our lives. We have situations in our lives. We have hurts in our lives, pains in our life, confusion in our life, whatever it may be. Things happen, and then we have to force ourselves. We have to force ourselves to think in accordance with God's story. It won't just happen. It's a war. Truth is always a battle. Here's what will just happen. You'll start lying to yourself. That's what will just happen. Either there's going to be a war, there's going to be a battle, or your head is going to start playing the same old lies it's been playing year after year after year after year. 
Why? Why by force? Why? Why is it this way? Look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. So we are in a war, but it's not this kind of war, which means it must be another kind of war. We're in a war, but it's not a war according to the flesh. So that means it's a war according to the spirit. That means it's not a war. You're not in a war against your circumstances. That's the flesh. You're not in a war against any physical thing that you can see and touch in this world. You're not in a war against any people. It's not a war of the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, look here. So we're in a war. We have weapons available to us. They're not fleshly weapons. They're not earthly weapons because we're not fighting an earthly war. But all of our time and our energy, all of our, all, all of so much of our lives are lived by sight. All day long, we're walking around, looking, feeling, touching, smelling, experiencing, living by sight. Basing how we feel, basing whether we're having a good day or a bad day, whether we're anxious, whether we're depressed, whether we're frustrated, whether we're happy, whether we're basing on, on things of this world, wrapped up in the wrong domain, and then wondering why we're not successful, because you're in, you're in the wrong domain. There's no weapons in that domain that will work in that war because it's in a different domain. What does it mean to walk in the flesh? See, a lot of people think that walking in the flesh is that there are certain things. And if we don't do those things, or if we do those things, we're walking in the flesh. A lot of people think walking in the flesh is about the things that we do. But that's not how the Bible teaches about walking in the flesh. According to Scripture, to walk in the flesh is to live as if you don't possess God's Spirit within you and God's promises about you. That's what walking in the flesh is. See, walking in the flesh simply is living as if the gospel's not true. That's what walking in the flesh is. Don't get confused. Don't overcomplicate it. So Paul tells us that there's these strongholds, that we're in a war, and it's not of the flesh, but it's a spiritual war, and there's strongholds. We have access to weapons that can defeat these strongholds, spiritual weapons that defeat the spiritual strongholds that can actually make us victorious in the war in this life. Now, what is a stronghold? Well, Paul tells us, look at verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here's how we know what strongholds are because we know how to defeat them, right? So this is an explanation of what strongholds are. We destroy arguments. Arguments. What is that? Logismos in the Greek. The word, it means thoughts, ideas. Now, wait a minute. Remember, so many of us are people who spend all of our time walking by sight. And yet, the battle is not even in that realm. And the things that we're fighting are thoughts and ideas. You can't even see them. You can't feel them. You can't smell them. You can't touch them. 
Lofty opinions. You know what that is? That's man-centered, prideful opinions. That's what lofty opinions are. All it is is opinions, thinking about yourself. So any false thoughts, ideas, or opinions that the enemy can get you to think about God. Or if he can just get you consumed with yourself. Because if you're consumed with yourself, you're not thinking about God. See, that the... The story of the gospel is not not playing. The soundtrack of Scripture is not playing in your mind if you're consumed with yourself. It's not playing in your mind if you're consumed with your ideas and your, your thoughts and your opinions and your arguments and your this and your that. See, it, it, it's anything to get you off of the main thing is acceptable to the enemy. He's happy. Because then you're powerless against what God's given you ultimate power and authority over. God said, you, you should, we should all win all the time. No excuse. No excuse. Notice something. We're in a war. Are we fighting demons? Is that what the Bible says? There's no mention of demons. There's no mention of demons whatsoever. There, there's no, the Bible, it, look, the, the Bible defines spiritual warfare as the battle for your thoughts. That's what spiritual warfare is. See, the Bible didn't say, hey, so do this. Pray this incantation. Do, you know, speak this thing. Go and do this. Slay this demon. You know, take authority over this or that or what. Or, and none of that. None, there's no talk of that. What God says is, no, no, it's destroying arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. That's what it is. We're in a war, but it's, it's not on the outside. We're not fighting an outside war. It's inside. It's inside. The, the battle's inside. Listen, okay, remember the Garden of Eden. Go all the way back. Genesis chapter 3. Here we got Adam and Eve in perfection, living with God, in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship with God. Now, what happens? It derails all of humanity and destroys pollutes sin into everything that that comes after that. What happens? The serpent comes, and he says to the woman, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Hmm. And then the woman said to the serpent, well, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not, well, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, I want you to understand something. Here's Satan. He sees God create Adam and Eve, put him in the garden. He sees what's going on. Now, notice Satan's strategy Satan does not, see, if we wrote the story, Satan would kidnap Adam and Eve, take them out of perfection, and torture them until they renounce Christ, right? I mean, that would make sense, but he doesn't, that's not what happens. He doesn't even devote himself to making life, listen, listen, listen to some of your lofty opinions and arguments, Satan doesn't devote himself to making life in the garden difficult for Adam and Eve. You got that? See, you know what we think? We think that all, all evil is just spending all of its time trying to make our lives difficult. So every wrong thing that happens is just making our life difficult. Is that what's going on? Could Satan have done that? Sure. But that's not what he did. 
No, he went for the highest and best. He went, for, he went straight for the ultimate attack. Plant seeds of doubt in their mind. Right here. Here's where the war is. Just get them to doubt. Just get them to think in their heart, God can't be trusted. God's holding out. God doesn't want what's best for me. Because once you start doubting God, once you think God doesn't want what's best for you, then what is your response? When that soundtrack starts playing in your mind, as soon as life gets hard, what, ha- what happens? I knew it. See? He's mad at me. He doesn't, he, I can't trust him. He's this, blah, blah, right? Yes. All right. Let's fast forward. Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land. Here they are. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've wandered through the wilderness. They get to the edge of the Jordan River. They can see the promised land. Moses sends 12 spies over to to go into the promised land and scout it out. And so they go over there. And they scout it out, and they see, you know, all these fortified cities and these giant people, and, and they experience all these. They bring back, you know, fruit, giant grapes, clusters that two men are having to carry. They bring pomegranates back. They got all the spoils. They come back, and they get there. Now, all of them have seen the same things, experienced the same things. And immediately, Caleb and Joshua go, We need to roll. We can take them. But the other 10, notice what the Bible says. Here's what they say. There we saw the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. I have a question. How do they know what the giants thought about them? Did they talk to the giants? Did they have a conversation with the giants? No. They don't know what the giants were thinking, but the soundtrack in their mind has already come to the conclusion. Oh, they're giants. We can't take them. They're going to get us. They're going to kill us. They look at us and see. Their mind, their mind has already told them all the things the giants think about them. So what happens? Forty years. Forty years. Now, see, they didn't believe. They, they didn't believe God's story. They believed their story. They believed what they saw with their eyes. That's what they, that's what they did. Listen, they brought back giant fruit. Like, come on. Isn't that enough to go, hold up a minute now. There's something crazy going on over here. He said it was a land filled with with milk and honey. It was going to be this uh, amazing place. No, see, they already came to the conclusion of what the people thought. Then fast forward 40 years. 40 years later, they circle back. Now Joshua sends two spies over to Jericho. (laughs) Why didn't he send 10? Because he doesn't learn that lesson. So he sends two. Two spies to Jericho. Now, 40 years, think of all the death, all the suffering, all the pain that's occurred in 40 years because of the first mishap. He sends two over there, and they go over there, and who do they meet? Rahab. And what does Rahab tell them? Who lives in the city of giants. Rahab says in Joshua 2.11, And as soon as we heard of the Red Sea, our hearts melted. Neither did they remain any more courage in any of us because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and above and, and beneath the earth. Rahab says, we've been afraid all this time. She tells us what the giants were thinking. But you see, If that, if that soundtrack in your head is saying, nah, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if I've been good enough. I don't know if I deserve this. I don't know if, if, if he'll do this. I don't know if he wants my good. I think he wants other people's good, but I don't think he wants my good. It doesn't matter what the truth is because you're going to follow whatever that soundtrack in your head is telling you. 
See, walking in the flesh is completely and, and totally to do with thoughts and motivations. Because here's the thing. Understand, you, you can do good things, even Christian things, for self-glorification. So don't, don't get wrapped up. Don't miss the, the, the central theme of Scripture, the warning over and over of the Bible. Notice verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Before you can get to obey Christ, you have to deal with the thought. The thought precedes the behavior. But if you spend your life wrapped up in behavior, then you miss the main thing. And then guess what? You stay derailed and defeated. Because you're fighting in the wrong realm, the wrong things, in the wrong way, with the wrong weapons. You wake up every day and spend your life looking, 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 commentating, thinking, seeing. Oh, what about this? And I feel about that. And I'm worried about this. And I don't like this. And I don't. And the whole time the Bible's saying, shut up. I have the narrative right here. This is the narrative. Say this. Here's what's true. You don't know what's true. That's why I had to die for you. It doesn't say we take every action captive. No, see, look, the most formative strongholds against us come from within us. That's where you start. That's step one. You see, it's not, oh, the devil's attacking my marriage. Well, he is. It's not, oh, the devil, the devil wants to destroy my children. Well, he does. It's not, oh, the devil's constantly trying to make my life difficult. Well, well, he is. But no, make no mistake about it. The greatest threat in your life by a million miles is the enemy gaining control of the thoughts in your head. It's the soundtrack that plays Every moment of every day. Over and over and over and over. See, think about this. If a murderer came and set up camp in your backyard. A known murderer came and set up tent Camp, campfire, whole thing in your backyard. What would you do? You would flip out. You would call the police, the FBI, the CIA, your freaky weird brother-in-law who's a little unstable. You'd do whatever you had to do. You, and here's the thing, you would never not want, there's zero chance that you'd even spend one night in the house with that lunatic in the backyard. But yet, You let the most notorious serial killer in the history of the universe set up camp in your mind. In your mind. He's the ultimate murderer. And see, he's got you thinking and feeling that because these things happened to you when you were a child, so that's why you think this way, and that's why you feel this way, and because of this, and because of that, and you've got these, and, and you got these, these weaknesses that you keep getting attacked in. And what are the weaknesses? Their weaknesses are in your thoughts. And the Bible's saying, no, you renew this new narrative. That's the old narrative. Now the thoughts in your mind, you, you say the gospel. You preach the gospel to yourself. Yes. See, if we don't constantly tell ourselves the true gospel story, then our thoughts are going to run wild. It's just how it's going to go. Look, and, and, don't, and, and how powerful are our thoughts? Listen, a couple years ago, when my wife was going through all that trouble with her neck, and I mean, it was horrible. I mean, she, she was miserable for a year. 
Like every day I go home to a crying wife. I can't help her, can't fix it, can't make the pain go away. Can't, I mean, it's just terrible all the time, chronic pain all the time. So at one point we go in for an MRI and the, they, they take her in the room and put her in the MRI machine. Next thing I know, the lady comes out there and says, sir, are you Mr. Carnes? We're going to need you in the back. I'm like, this can't be good. And I go back in there, and my wife is in full-blown, legit freakazoid mode. She's lost her ever-loving mind. She is literally about to have a heart attack. I said, what is wrong with you? She's like, I don't know. I just can't get in this thing, man. I'm, I mean, you know what I mean? And I'm like, wait a minute. Hold up a second. It's, an, it's a tube. You can see through it to the other side. She's like, I, I just can't get it. I don't know. It's the, it's the noises. It's the vibrations. It's the feeling. It's the, I mean, she is literally about to stroke out. And I'm like, hey, calm down. Hold up a second. And I bend over and I stick my nose right there in her nose. And I go, old ladies and little kids do this all the time and they're fine. <laughs> I said, have you ever seen a story on the news that somebody died in the MRI? No. You ever heard of somebody going in an MRI machine and never coming back? No. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Man, I had an MRI and I'm like, praise the Lord, peace and quiet. Leave me alone. The lady comes in, she's like, sir, wake up, sir, wake up, wake up. I mean, I'm out. I'm like, can we do that again? I mean, I'm vibrating, I'm sleeping, I'm like, this is awesome. But your mind, once you get something in your mind, the next thing you know, you're like. Look. When, when we get into hard, painful places. But really, before you get there. Some of you I know are there now, but. Right now, in this moment today, listen. When you say things to yourself like, how can good come from this? How can good come from this? How do you think that makes God feel? He knows that you can't see how good can come from this. But he also knows that he's told you that he can do it. And he's always kept every promise he's ever made to you. And he's thinking to himself, now wait a second. When, when you remember back on the day that I redeemed you, I already did the most impossible thing that could ever be done in your life. But now today, at some forward moment, now all of a sudden, how can good come from this? Like somehow my promise is insufficient because of your limited understanding? See that soundtrack? I don't know, God. Think about the Bible for a second. When does God do his greatest work? When did he part the Red Sea for the Israelites? When they were on vacation at the beach? Or when the greatest army on the face of the earth was bearing down with all their weapons, and they're literally standing there on the shore of the Red Sea with pots and pans. And it's ultimate, imminent death. And somebody's saying, well, I don't know. How can good come from this? I mean, this, is, this definitely can't be good. And the next thing you know, they're walking on dry land. That didn't happen on a sunny day when everything was fine 
No. See, over and over, God shows us in his word that he, he, he shows up big time. In our darkest moments and times. Not according to our timing. But he's, he's reminding us, I'm at work, don't you? You better, you better know the gospel. You better believe the gospel. And yet in our mind, we're saying it's not fair. I don't like this. I can't do this. I don't deserve this. See, we're, we've got these strongholds. But the gospel says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. See, my stronghold. Or Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He's their stronghold in the time of trouble. See, what happens if your life falls to pieces, but God is your stronghold? Everything changes. Everything changes about how you handle that situation, how you respond in that situation, what your witness is to other people. Everything changes based on this right here. You got to be aware of the war every day for your thoughts. There are no such thing as neutral thoughts. No such thing. And you better not believe everything that pops into your head or you're going to be in a world of trouble. So let me give you some practical things. I want you to write these down and then we're done. Okay? Because I want to help you. I want you to have victory. I'm going to teach you a simple practical thing that you can do to, to, to get victory. Always ask yourself at different times during the day, at, at least once every day, just be conscious. Ask yourself, what's the story in my head today? What's the story in my head today? What's the story in my head today? Ask yourself that question. Then here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down your thoughts on a piece of paper. Write them down. Because it's amazing to me how you can be convinced of something amongst you, yourself, and I. But when you write it down and look at it and go, wow, that is really stupid. See, what I should have done was handed my wife a notepad and say, can you write this down for me? Because I'm going to want to remind you of what you're... Write, write those thoughts down. I want you to write down what you think is going to happen to you. Because you know what she would have done? She would have, she would have put like a question mark. She didn't even know. Tell, what, what, are you, what, what are you afraid of? It's going to eat you? <laughs> is that what you're afraid of? Write it down. Write down. I think it's going to eat me. No, you wouldn't write that down because it's dumb. So you take a piece of paper and write your thoughts down. Then sit down periodically through your week. If you're struggling in your mind, open your Bible, take those thoughts and compare them to Scripture. And watch what happens. Normally, before you even get to the Bible, you're going to realize, wow, I need a lot of help. And then call, call it the lie that it is. See, to take captive, how do you take captive? You've got to bind something up to take it captive, right? You don't take something captive by saying, excuse me, could you scoot over to the side? No, you've got to tie that sucker up. You've got to bind it up. You've got to take it captive. You've got to throw it out. That's how you take it captive. You forcibly remove it. So you write it down. Check it against Scripture and then say, that is a lie. It's a lie. See, victory comes when we start telling our story with Jesus as king. He's the king. Bad things happen in my life. First thing I say to myself, Jesus is the king. He's the king. He's the king. Do I like it? No. Do I understand it? No. Do I want it? No. Do I wish it didn't happen? Yes. But 
What am I going to do? Jesus is the king. He's the king. He's the king. He has authority. He's the king over all of it, over every single thing. He is the king over all my thoughts, over all my feelings, over all my actions. He's the king. You know why? Because just like an original song that I sat down and wrote out with my own mind and skill, and he sat down and intentionally put me together bit by bit and piece by piece the way I am for his honor and glory. He is the king. And then you'll find victory. And you'll slowly begin to let go of all the things you see with your carnal eyes. And realize that what's really happening of real importance and significance in the world and in your life are the things you can't see. And all your weapons to defeat it are right here. Let's stand and bow our heads.